Welcome to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Over the next hour, you will hear raw, honest, and inspiring conversation between Lindsay and her guests, discussing how to thrive, live joyfully, and abundantly in spite of life's challenges. Now, here is your host, Lindsay McCowan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Thriving Unapologetically. I am your host, Lindsay McCowan, and we are here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel, and we have an incredible incredibly special guest today that I'm so excited to have a conversation with. But before we dive into conversation about how to level up and not shrink or fade out as we enter our perimenopause and menopausal years, let's do what we always do. Let's just take a moment to stop, pause, and breathe. So here in this moment, if it's if you're in an area where you can actually close your eyes and feel safe to do so, do so. And let's just take a moment to breathe into our body, especially for women as our body starts to change and we feel like there is havoc being wrecked on our bodies and our lives. It's so important just to take a moment to breathe into this sacred container of our body. And with those deep, full breaths, we can take a moment just to have appreciation for all of it, for the changes, for the challenges, and for how amazing these bodies actually are. So let's just take one more deep breath in and out. And then when you're ready, you can make your way back and we can have this incredible conversation around how to really appreciate this body, even if it is changing rapidly. So today we have Stacy Sims on our show, and she is a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women of all ages. And I love this about her mission, which is to shift the destructive narrative around women's health and elevate women in research, science, and sport. And we're going to be diving into her new book, which is called Next Level. And what? Um, let me back that up one second. It's Next Level, your guide to kicking ass, feeling great, crushing goals through menopause and beyond. I want to make sure I got that, that subtitle in because it's awesome. And so we're going to be talking, getting some advice from her on the latest research and what to do about um, all these changes that are happening in our body. So welcome so much. To the show, Stacy. Thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Now I feel all relaxed after taking deep breaths because I always forget to start the day in a rush and I always need someone to remind me. My God, I feel so well, much better. I can remind you. I'll send you a little little memos to remind you to take those deep breaths because thank you. They have changed so much for me. And your book has changed so much for me. Um, I mean, your first book was great because it helped normalize the role hormones play and in women's physiology, but this book is near and dear to my heart because I'm a woman of 50 and experiencing some symptoms and uh, and having these questions like, what the hell is going on with my body? <laughs> I feel yeah. like I don't have any control over what's going on in my body where I've been able to kind of quote unquote control it over the years. And so this, I really feel like this next level book is like a guidebook for women, not just women that are starting to experience perimenopausal symptoms, but women of all ages so that they can start to educate themselves now for how what's inevitably going to happen. We, you know, when we're younger, we're like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen to me. (laughs) 
And it, then does. it does. <laughs> Did you ever have that that feeling when you're younger? Oh, that's not going to happen to me. Uh, sort of, but I got thrown into the whole mindset when I was 30 because yeah. of the research I was doing. And so I was like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but then you become educated. You're like, yeah, okay, bring it. Let's see what yeah. happens. And then it, yeah. and, and this is what I would love to bring into this conversation is like the importance of relanguaging um, the conversation and the wording around menopause, because, you know, our culture, especially in the United States and just Western culture in, in general, has, is very ageist. And we don't talk about aging as women because there's shame around it or stigma around it. And because if you get to, you know, a certain age, then you start to lose your value and you don't want to have to admit that to anybody. And so the knowledge is actually really powerful to have so that we can, um, you know, step away from that patriarchal or toxic masculine perspective and step into what is actually possible for us. So I'd love just to start there around why is the language important and explaining what, you know, menopause is, what in perimenopause versus postmenopause, because I think that's even confusing for a lot of us. Yeah, because it gets lumped into one as menopause or the menopause. And the fear around it really stems from the patriarchy not understanding it because men don't go through it, right? So mm. women don't age in a linear fashion like men do. So looking through history, like women who were in the Puritan ages were burned at the stake as witches because they were perimenopausal or menopausal looking for different ways to control symptoms or hot flashes were perceived as being like the sign of the devil. So there's all these miscommunications that just put a huge evil and negative spin on what is menopause and what it means to be a woman going through this. And I, I really like the fact that you are very empowered by the book because that's a whole goal of the book is to get people to understand what's going on and really change the language um, because menopause in itself is just one day on the calendar. And people are like, oh, what do you mean one day on the calendar? I'm like, well, actually in a, an ideal world, we'd all celebrate that one day on the ca calendar and be like, yes, it's a birthday for the rest of my life. But we're, I don't think we're there yet. So we have yeah. to look at perimenopause are the years prior to it. And it can start in your mid thirties, but most women start to hit that phase in their mid forties. And it can be anywhere from 15 to 20 years long. And then you hit that one point in time menopause that marks 12 months of no periods. And then after that is postmenopause. And unfortunately, everything that people think about as being menopause is, is really perimenopause. We talk about hot flashes, body composition change, brain fog, uh, depression, anxiety, um, vaginal dryness, loss of strength, loss of muscle mass. All of those things happen in perimenopause. And when we're looking at what's happening, it's the change in the ratios and the hormones of estrogen, progesterone. So we're getting more and more anovulatory cycles. We're not producing as much progesterone and all systems in our body are starting to be affected. And unfortunately in Western society, if you're a woman who is having problems sleeping, who is highly stressed and, for, and has anxiety and is like, I don't know what's going on. Um, starting to have really poor disrupted sleep. You might not be having hot flashes or night sweats, but there's all of these cumulative things that are going on. You're starting to put on body fat and you're really tired and you go to your physician, you go, what is going on? Because this is not right. And most of the time they'll be told 
oh, well, it's your time in, in life where you're very busy. You have young kids or older teenagers, you have uh, a career and you're just doing too much. You need to learn how to relax, de-stress. And here's a SSRI or an antidepressant to help. But they're not actually examining what's going on, explaining to the woman that what is happening is you're having these ratio changes in your hormones. And there are things that we can do through exercise, nutrition, adaptogens that will help. And then if you are really severely affected by symptomology, we can look to different kinds of pharmaceuticals for therapy. Um, and so when we start looking at how all of that is unwinding in our Western society, it comes back to the drive for people to be fixed by pharmaceuticals and the drive for women not to become, quote, old. So there's all this pushback from the physicians to be like, not intentional. This is just how they've been, they've been educated to fix the problem with pharmaceutical and not look at it, women as who's 40, as aging, but as a woman who's 40, who's stressed. Yeah. And that's so important because, you know, they don't understand what's really going on with our physiology. I mean, you know, doctors, I believe to be you know, or really just simply want to help us and fix the problem, but they don't have the education behind it to really help us in the way that we really need to be helped. And that, um, and so this kind of leads me into the question that, okay, it's not, I don't want to feel like, you know, we're a problem that needs to be fixed, you know, exactly. I just, exactly. Yeah. And so, and, or just here, take these couple of, you know, this antidepressants and then just, and push us aside, but let's really get into the conversation of what's happening. And so what can we do? Like, you know, what are some of the alternatives that we can do to support our physiology? Like, you know, you've talked about, you know, hormone replacement therapy as not really hormone replacement therapy. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So there's a couple of conversations around it. Um, there was a big upsurgence in the UK recently talking about menopause being female deficiency hormone syndrome. <clears throat> and it's all the eye of we're losing something, but it's not the eye to this is what naturally happens as you age and we're not deficient. It's just the same as at puberty when everything starts to change for young girls because they have the exposure of hormones and their body's responding to it because we have different estrogen progesterone receptors that suddenly become upregulated and they start regulating different aspects of body comp, muscle, all those kinds of things. And then on the other spectrum, there's only a, a short time in a woman's life where um, we can reproduce just from a biological standpoint. So when we start to get to a biological age where we aren't so capable of being able to reproduce, the body starts winding down those reproductive hormones. And that's what perimenopause is. So when we start looking at hormone therapy, I'm not going to call it hormone replacement therapy. It's the eye to kind of mitigate that sudden downturn and all these shifts of these hormones. Um, if we think about it as go back to the puberty aspect, I often go, you wouldn't put your 10 or 11 year old daughter on an oral contraceptive pill to level the playing field. So the first call to a woman who is going through perimenopause should not be hormone replacement therapy because one, we're not replacing anything. And two, there are so many physiological changes that are occurring that those hormones, those synthetic hormones don't actually do exactly what 
your natural hormones do. And what I mean by that is as we start going through perimenopause, we start losing the sensitivity and the amount of estrogen and progesterone receptors because our body is not producing the same ratios as before. So it starts downregulating. And when we look at hormone therapy, it is attaching to some of those just to modulate the changes that are occurring. And the biggest thing that people kind of think about is I'm having body fat gain and I'm losing strength. I'm losing muscle mass. I'm going to use hormone replacement therapy so I can avoid it, but we can't because menopause hormone therapy does not help with that. Menopause hormone therapy does help with uh, preventing osteoporosis. It helps with all the brain and mood changes that are occurring because they're neurotransmitter driven. It does help with hot flashes and um, night sweats, and it can help with some of the urogenital aspects of, of weak muscle floor of the pelvic floor and vaginal dryness. But it is, again, a therapy to use to get through the bulk of the transition to help your body through it, but it's not to replace and maintain youth. And I think that's a big conversation that's being mishad is that people are like, oh, you don't have to go through perimenopause. You don't have to be menopausal. Just take this and you can stay young forever. But that is absolutely not what it is about, nor does it do that. And it's just playing into that whole, um, you know, the patriarchal beauty standards, which really keep us kind of adhered and um, spinning in this, this need to continuously be youthful, young, beautiful, hence valuable, seen, worthy. And I think I love this conversation that ladies, it's going to happen. Like, you know, it's, we can't take something to replace it. No pill is going <laughs> to make it go away. It's going to, you know, I love the idea. It's just therapy. It's not replacement. It's just therapy. And you speak in your book about other things that we can do if we don't want to take, you know, a prescription uh, drug that we can actually do other things that for me personally, I have found to be more helpful because I didn't want to do, I don't know what it was. I, I don't know if you muscle test, but I muscle tested my whole body was like, no, don't do that. So I started doing some of the other things that you recommend in your book. So can you share with us some of the things that we can, we can do? Yeah. So there are two major things that we can look at, at trying to do. So the first is applying an external stressor to the body that will create an adaptive response the way hormones used to support. What I mean by that is when we look at exercise, right? So the general recommendations are 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise. And this is not what women in this part of their life should be doing, regardless of how fit they are, or how used to exercise they are, uh, because it puts women in this moderate intensity zone, of course, moderate exercise, where it's too hard to be easy to get like aerobic adaptations and it's too easy to be hard to get the adaptive responses we want. So we have to look at first doing resistance training. And I'm not talking about body weight stuff. I'm talking about actually lifting something that feels heavy and progressively working to lifting heavy. And the primary reason for that is the first thing that we lose is strength. And that is because estrogen is so tightly tied to the neuromuscular aspect, central nervous system of a nerve coming down and stimulating the muscle fibers to contract because there's a little gap between the nerve and the muscle called the gap junction. And we have a neurotransmitter that crosses that gap to create the muscle contraction. 
And estrogen is tightly tied to how much of that neurotransmitter acetylcholine is there. And when estrogen starts to go up and down, we lose that reserve of acetylcholine. So our muscle can't contract as strongly as it used to. So if we lift something heavy, we're relying specifically on the central nervous system to say, hey, wait, I need to recruit and capture more acetylcholine because I need a really strong contraction. So then it's not about estrogen creating and holding more of estrogen receptors, holding more of that acetylcholine. It's about the body responding and saying, I need to fill up these vesicles with acetylcholine because I don't know when I'm going to encounter the stress again. The other thing that estrogen is tied to in a muscle sense is the actual satellite cell. So when we're looking at estrogen dissipating, we need another signal to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Again, it's heavy lifting because if you're having that heavy resistance training, then it's going to stimulate the muscle fibers themselves to be like, hey, wait, I need more muscle fiber and more muscle to overcome this stress. And the last thing that estrogen is involved in, in the actual muscle contraction is it's tightly tied to a filament that causes a muscle contraction, myosin. And when estrogen goes down, you don't have as tight of a, of a bond of actin to create a really strong contraction. So again, we need to lift heavy so the body learns all the patterning to do all of the stuff to overcome the load, to build muscle, to be strong without estrogen. So I love that you're talking about this because well, one, I would love, we have to go to break, but I do want to, when we come back to talk about, well, what is heavy? And because a lot of women have different ideas of what heavy is, and a lot of women are afraid they're going to bulk up, which drives me bananas because you're not going to bulk up. And we can talk about that when we come back and like the importance uh, and how, um, what heavy, what one heavy is, two, that we're not going to bulk up, and then some insights on to some of the training around that that we can do. So if you're listening to this, we're talking to Stacey Sims, and we're going to, uh, author of Next Level, your guidebook to moving through menopause and kicking some ass as you're doing so instead of getting your ass kicked by it. <laughs> and so we'll be right back after this. Women, are you tired of chasing after your dreams? Exhausted and overwhelmed from trying so hard to have the perfect life? Do you yearn for more ease, freedom, and time to explore what is near and dear to your heart, yet have no idea how to stop pushing forward? Join your host, Lindsay McCowan, and others like you on a journey to awaken the divine feminine. When you awaken the divine feminine, you awaken parts of yourself that have been ignored, lay dormant, put on the back burners, or forgotten. When you fully ignite these aspects of yourself, you awaken your ability to thrive in all areas of your life, including relationships, finances, health, career, and purpose. You stop chasing after life and step into an easeful magnetic flow. You become the magnet that effortlessly attracts joy, love, space to play, abundance, and magic that illuminates your life. Does that sound like the future you? Go to lindsay.tv slash goddess to sign up today. You are listening to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Have a question for Lindsay or her guests? Want to share your story? Email Lindsay at thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. That's thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Lindsay. 
Welcome back to Women Thriving Unapologetically. I'm Lindsay McCowan, your host, and we are here today with Stacey Sims talking about her book, Next Level. And so we're going to dive right back in because time is precious when we're talking with such amazing guests such as Stacey. And we left talking about um, the importance of lifting heavy, like really using resistance training to, well, Stacey, I'm just going to let you talk because I'm not going to even try to regurgitate what you said because you're the expert on this, but why should we be lifting heavy? We need to look to that external load to create the central nervous system to respond and to create some metabolic shifts within the body, the way that estrogen used to help us do. Um, So basically we're looking for an external stress to I don't really want to say replace, but pretty much replace what hormones used to do for us. And, and so what is heavy? Yeah, this is the question, right? So I, I don't want anyone who's listening to this to go, oh, I heard on the radio, I have to go you know, deadlift 100 kilos or 200 pounds right away. And they've never been in the gym before because it is very technique and it is hard. So what we talk about heavy lifting is a power-based lifting. We know that women in general, regardless of age, do better from a power-based training standpoint. You'll have people say, oh no, just do eight to 12 reps and you'll get some hypertrophy. You'll build some muscle. Yes, but it's not as strong as it could be. And a lot of women also have this fear of getting bulky. And I'm here to tell you that the reason why we think that lifting weights equates to bulky is because when we first had the image of women lifting weights, we saw Miss Olympia. And those images coming out as popular media, but that is not the normal response for women. We see power lifters at the Olympics and they are relatively bulky, but they work at that. So if you are a woman who's doing heavy lifting, if you want to build and get bulky, you have to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and no cardiovascular work at all. Like it is really hard work to put on lean mass. And that's why it's really essential, again, for women who are peri and postmenopause to lift heavy, to preserve and try to build lean mass because it's so easy to lose. It's when the first thing that goes. Did, so, did you say it's like 8% of lean body decade, mass? Per decade, yeah. Per so decade. we look at it and heavy lifting is lifting a weight that you can do really well for three to five reps with really good form. So you don't finish that fifth rep and go, huh, I could go to 10 because that's not what this is about. It is about recruiting as many muscle fibers and having good form and lifting that weight. And it is hard. It's not one of these that you do when you're tired. It's not one of these where you're like, oh, I have 20 minutes. I might as well just do something. It's planned. And it could only take 20 minutes because it's really hard and that's good, but not 20 minutes of, I'll just do some lunges and what a lot of women fall into where they're doing a weight that they could do 20 lunges instead of a weight where they should really only do five. So it is about the recruitment of as many muscle fibers as you possibly can to lift that load. It's not about tearing the muscle fibers to create more which is what we say hypertrophy is, but it is about stimulating the central nervous system, stimulating that nerve to go down and try to recruit as many muscle fibers as possible to contract all at once to lift this load. That is what heavy lifting is. And so when you're, I I love this because, okay, it's a 20 minute workout versus 45 hour, 90 minute, 
workout that I see a lot of women doing and, you know, I've done in the past, but it's just like a short period of time that's well thought out, well planned so that you can get in there, get it done and get the best results. Yes, absolutely. Because if you're doing something that is 30, 45, 90 minutes, you're not doing it properly, I should say. Like if you're going to be in the gym and it's 45 minutes, well, 15 of that is mobilizing and warming up. Then 10 to 15 of that is actually doing your heavy lifts. And then another 10 to 15 of that is rolling out, mobilizing, and cooling down. That's 45 minutes. That's at the long stretch. But when we talk about it, it's you're taking two to three specific movements. And maybe you're like, I'm going to work on deadlifts this week. So deadlift is the main lift that you're doing three times a week. And you're going in one day and doing five sets of five, maybe tempo. So you're really slow. You stop at the bottom and you pull back up and then you drop it really slowly. So you're working on technique and form, having a muscle contraction all the way through. Then maybe the second day you go to the gym, you're working on cluster sets. So a cluster set is something like, okay, I need to do um, six reps, but you're going to do them a little bit heavier than what you did the first day, where you're going to go two reps, 10 second pause, two reps, 10 second pause, two reps, 10 second pause, and then a minute or two between. So you're able to lift more because it's two, a little bit of a pause, two, a little bit of a pause. And then the third day, you might be doing a mix-up of the deadlift where you're doing um, sets of three and then sets of five, and you're descending the weight and you're maxing out at one set of eight at the most. So that whole time, you're really building the neuromuscular strength. You've been in the gym three times. You might do some ancillary work, but those three times in the gym at the most, 20 minutes. So we're looking at it. If you're doing something over 20 minutes, then you haven't gone hard enough. And so I, you're getting profound results in a shorter amount of time. Exactly. Which, I mean, come on, who doesn't want that? Right, exactly. <laughs> Let's save some time and really get some serious results. Right. And, um, and so with this, like, how should we be fueling ourselves for this type of, uh, well, just in general, because I feel like there's so many fad diets out there. And I swear, I think I've tried all of them and none of them have been sustainable. Um, I'm usually not a very happy person when I'm doing them. And I, in your book, you just, you just break it down and say the, like, these fad diets are really not healthy for us women, especially the ketogenic and the intermittent fasting. So I would love for you to kind of like blow people's minds with this and explain to us why that is. First and foremost, the research that's been done out there on intermittent fasting and keto has not been done on a healthy population. We look at the origins of these research and intermittent fasting initially came from the research on um, religious aspects of like Ramadan, seeing how that would affect metabolism because of the interest in calorie restriction in the 30s. Then when we look at the way that it translated into um, the health arena, it was because there were obese sedentary men that needed to lose a lot of weight quickly before surgery. So they would have to do times of restricted eating and they couldn't starve themselves because they still need to eat a little bit. So this is how intermittent fasting came up. Ketogenic is very similar where it was, let's look and starve the body of glucose so that we can burn through body fat a lot faster to lose weight quickly for surgery or for metabolic control, but in sedentary obese men. There have been a few studies that have been done on the ketogenic diet on sedentary obese women 
but never anyone who is healthy weight or exercising. So when we start looking specifically at what's happening, if a woman is doing intermittent fasting and doing it to more of the extreme, like the um, 16 hour fast or 20 hour fast or alternate day fasting, they end up spending the bulk of their awake time where their body needs fuel in a fasted state. And women's bodies don't respond well to that. We know across the board, regardless of age, that women do better in a fed state, especially with exercise. And this is because by the fact of being XX at birth, we have specific differences within our muscles and within our metabolic systems that allow us to metabolize and use fatty acids better. And we also have areas in the hypothalamus that are more sensitive to nutrient deficiency. So men have one area in the brain because they don't have a menstrual cycle. Women have two because we have endocrine function that is very reliant on nutrient density. So if you start doing a lot of exercise or go through your day in a fasted state, you get into this breakdown state. And the first thing to go is lean mass. And we see the research that says, oh, you get better insulin control or blood glucose control. You have better parasympathetic drive focus. That's from male research. When we look at the results for women, it's not the same. We see that, in fact, women's um, lipids go up in a negative way. So we have more LDL that comes up and we have higher triglycerides that come up. We have uh, worsening of our blood glucose control where they've seen women who are pre-diabetic tip over to being diabetic when they're following mm -hmm. just a 12 and 12, right? So they are spending too much that they might do. Um, they break their fast at noon and then they go through it again and they break their fast at noon. But because they have a big hole in the first part of the day where their body is looking at, I need fuel, it's still creating the signal to the hypothalamus that there isn't enough food. So it stays in a breakdown state. When we look at the ketogenic diet, this is where there's a lot of new, interesting research that's coming out specifically about the gut microbiome. So if we look at the ketogenic diet and it's 70% fat, really, really low carbohydrate. So it's a true ketogenic diet. Again, that research originated in a clinically sick population and now has been translated over into the health population. Yes, it can be effective for losing weight short-term, but the long-term, when we look at what's happening to the gut microbiome is so detrimental to women. And I say that because we have different diversity aspects than men. When we start seeing women going through perimenopause, because the gut is so responsible for metabolizing and re-releasing our sex hormones into the body, when we start having a perturbance in our sex hormones, we start losing diversity in the gut. And we start losing the bacteria that is responsible for leanness. We start having a shift from uh, more bacteriotes, which is the phyla responsible for lean, leanness and clarity and energy, and start getting more of the growth of the firmicutes phyla that is associated with obesity. And part of that is because we are having the shift in our hormones. So we are not getting the signal to our little gut bacteria that we need to stay. We need you to stay around to be able to work with our estrogen, work with our progesterone, work with our testosterone. And then when you add the ketogenic diet in as well, you're not feeding it the deep gut bacteria food of fiber. 
So when we look at the outcomes on a ketogenic diet for peri and postmenopausal women, they might have very short-term body weight loss, but most of it is lean mass. So you lose weight on the scale, but your body composition does not change for the better. We end up with a lot of lean mass loss and women can end up somewhat skinny fat, but we also have this massive shift in the diversity of our bacteria. We have that massive shift in the bacteria diversity, then we're leaning to being more capable of extracting energy from all the food that we eat, as well as the propensity to keep body fat on, especially abdominal body fat. So when you take the big picture of these trendy diets and look from a physiological standpoint, you add exercise and, and you add the fact that women are perimenopause into postmenopause, they don't work with the changes that our body's going through. They don't work with the energy needs our body is undergoing and they don't work because we're women. We're not men. I love that about your Ted talk. You know, you know, women are not small men and we shouldn't be training as small men. We shouldn't be feeding ourselves the same. I mean, we're just, we are different. We are women. And, and what I'm hearing you say is like, okay, what I've really taken out of this, like feed yourself. You have to really feed yourself because if you're starving yourself, then you're not losing, you're not losing fat. You're not losing that belly fat. You're actually losing lean body mass, which is so important as we age. And, and then also we're not, we have to have this healthy gut biome. If we don't have the healthy gut biome, it's also going to impair our immune system. I mean, everything is, it feels like everything is here in the gut is so, so important. Exactly. So, yeah. And so I believe we're already, are we already up? Nope. We have a couple more minutes before we go to break. So I really want to bring in um, this next question around sleep. Oh my God, sleep. I am I, I used to be able to sleep like like the log throughout the night, would wake up in the same position that I went to sleep in. Nice. Lo- <laughs> love the, love the, the heavy down comforter. And now I'm just like, oh my God, like if I wake up another time in the middle of the night, I'm going to go insane. But so what is happening to us and why are we not getting the sleep that we used to as we're going through these changes? It comes down to neurotransmitters again. So estrogen readily crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it has a direct effect on serotonin, dopamine, and melatonin. And as we are starting to have those ratio shifts, and sometimes we have more estrogen, sometimes we have less, it plays with the sensitivity of our um, receptors in the brain, especially to serotonin and dopamine. And we also know that um, it decreases our ability to produce melatonin. So we start seeing all these changes in our sleep architecture. Also with body temperature control, because we know that progesterone um, fluctuates and can change our internal temperature when we stop having progesterone, the hypothalamus is like, wait a second, what's going on here? Are we really hot or not? And in order to sleep well, we have to drop our core temperature down to around a half a degree lower than our resting wake up um, temperature. And we have to produce enough melatonin to keep that core temperature down. So if we are having fluctuations in estrogen and we're not producing as much melatonin, 
and the hypothalamus is going a little bit crazy, going, am I hot? Am I cold? Am I hot? Am I cold? We can't get into that deep resting temperature either. So we're very prone to waking up. We're in more light sleep, less slow wave and REM sleep. So any little disturbance can wake us up because we're right on that oscillatory threshold of wakeful and sleep. So we look in at the actual sleep architecture and we can see this in changes in a lot of wearables that like Whoop, where it's tracking sleep. You can see the changes over the course of even six months when women start having symptomology and you look at their sleep architecture, they're losing more and more of that slow wave and REM reparative sleep, which then feeds forward to not having enough energy and being dead tired the rest of the waking hours. Okay. So what do we do about it? I know this is the thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) What do we do about it, Stacey? (laughs) I know. So uh, aside from all the really good um, sleep hygiene, you know, you want to have a cool room. You don't want to have any screens. You want to have a weighted blanket, um, trying to go to bed at the same time, all of those things. The other thing that we need to look at using are adaptogens because adaptogens work with our body to understand what, how much cortisol is going on, what's happening with our neurotransmitters, how do we relax, how do we get into a deeper sleep. So we use things like holy basil and ashwagandha because these two really work to improve melatonin production, reduce cortisol, and allow us to have better body temperature control. So if we're using those over the course of a week to two weeks, then we start getting into a better sleep architecture. And it's about helping and supporting the body when it's under uh, an immense amount of stress, which is what perimenopause is. We have an increase in our baseline cortisol. We have an increase in sympathetic drive. So if we're using adaptogens, it helps us get into a parasympathetic drive, which again helps us get into a better and deeper sleep. And I, I appreciate you mentioning that, you know, our bodies are going through an extreme amount of stress because, you know, with what I do with my coaching with women and the yoga that I teach is, you know, it's about having some compassion for what's happening within our bodies. And it's like, okay, our bodies are going through such stress. What can we do to support the body as it's going through the stress? Just as if, you know, if you're having stress in your work, what would you do to help alleviate some of that stress? And so just to pay attention to the things that we can do to give the body the support it needs as it's going through a very stressful change. So thank you for bringing that up. And so we're going to head to our very last break of the show, but please don't go anywhere because we're having an amazing conversation with Stacey Sems. And if you are local to the Charlottesville area and are looking for a trainer or a gym that is actually incorporating a lot of Stacey Sems techniques and um, then look up Ironwolf Training, that's ironwolftraining.com, and you'll find an amazing trainer there that will support you in this change and staying fit and strong. We'll be right back after this short break. Women, are you tired of chasing after your dreams? Exhausted and overwhelmed from trying so hard to have the perfect life? Do you yearn for more ease, freedom, and time to explore what is near and dear to your heart, yet have no idea how to stop pushing forward? Join your host, Lindsay McCowan, and others like you on a journey to awaken the divine feminine. When you awaken the divine feminine, you awaken parts of yourself that have been ignored, lay dormant, put on the back burners, or forgotten. When you fully ignite these aspects of yourself, you awaken your ability to thrive in all areas of your life, including relationships, finances, health, career, and purpose. 
you stop chasing after life and step into an easeful magnetic flow. You become the magnet that effortlessly attracts joy, love, space to play, abundance, and magic that illuminates your life. Does that sound like the future you? Go to lindsay.tv slash goddess to sign up today. You are listening to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Have a question for Lindsay or her guests? Want to share your story? Email Lindsay at thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. That's thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Lindsay. Welcome back, everyone, to Women Thriving Unapologetically on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're having an amazing conversation with Stacey Sims. So, Stacey, what, I have some questions here from some of our listeners, and we have one woman who is actually in her 40s, but she's um, experiencing amenorrhea because she's an ultra athlete. She like an ultra runner. Like this is like 200 plus miles each race. And so she's still in her, you know, fertile years, but she's not having her period. So how would she just train the same way that someone that's in menopause or has trained because she doesn't have her cycle to give her any guidance? No, <laughs> no. Okay. No. Okay. When we encounter so making assumptions that are bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. When we are looking at hormone profile of women that are amenorrheic, sometimes it's even worse than what's happening in postmenopause. Because in postmenopause, you still have testosterone, you have estrone that can be converted to estradiol. But when we look like at an amenorrheic athlete, often their hormones are lower than postmenopausal, and it is a clinical issue. Um, most of amenorrhea is driven from relative energy deficiency in sport. So the way that, so I work with a lot of professional athletes who have somewhat fallen into amenorrhea. So amenorrhea is technically described as three months of no periods. And if it's longer than that, then we get even more concerned because it takes a huge impact or on your bone, on your metabolic health, on your psychological health, cardiovascular health, there's a whole cadre of things that can be impacted by amenorrhea. So what I have people do is really drop volume and work on strength. We work on strength. We work on a little bit of intensity. I know ultra runners are very, very tied to putting long runs in time on the feet but when you're amenorrheic, this is not the thing to do. It's a sign that your body is not adapting to the training because you don't have enough fuel coming in to support just lying on the couch watching Netflix, let alone going through your daily life and then adding training on. It's a sign that you need to eat because your hypothalamus is saying, hey, wait, there's not enough food coming in. So I'm going to downregulate my endocrine system. Your thyroid takes a hit after four days. And then we see menstrual cycle disturbances and amenorrhea. So we fuel before and after each training session. We take a relative volume break for at least a month where ultra runners will be like, oh no, but we don't drop it where you lose fitness. We look at how are we going to change it? So there's a better ratio of food coming in and energy expenditure out. So again, we focus on resistance training and we focus on quality training. So doing some interval work or some really low intensity hill strength work, and the body will adapt to that and you'll end up getting fitter and stronger. And then 
within a month to two months of doing this, we get a luteinizing hormone surge that comes back. And then we'll start to see elevations in our estrogen and our progesterone, and then your period will come back. It can take up to a year to get regular periods, but the first and foremost thing that we need to do is make sure that we have a better delta between energy out and food in, especially around training. Because if we don't put an eye to getting periods back, when they hit peri and postmenopause, the implications are so much worse with regard to bone density and lean mass loss. Oh, wow. Yeah, I totally made the wrong assumption there. I'm so glad I asked that question and got some clarity. Uh That's all right. (laughs) Because a lot of people think that they're like, oh, I don't have my period. That's all right. I'll just change it up and train as if I'm postmenopausal. But no, it's not. It's completely different. Oh, wow. Okay. And so this next question um, is from me. Um, So for me, one of the symptoms I've been experiencing more are the headaches. I mean, I've always experienced since um, 36, I've been having migraines, but I've changed my diet and that's helped. But I've been noticing as the perimenopausal symptoms are coming back, especially the hot flashes, the headaches are coming back more. And is there anything that we can do about that? Because I also have clients that suffer from migraines and they're about the same age as I am. So I'm just curious the connection there and if there's anything that we can do. Yeah. So a lot of um, women are, who have migraines and bad headaches, it is associated with a misstep between vasoconstriction and vasodilation. And estrogen is tightly tied to blood vessel compliance. So the lining of the cells that are lining of the blood vessels is called the endothelial lining. And these cells are where if you've heard beet juice or nitric oxide, estrogen helps with that process where it allows the blood vessels to be super compliant. So you get a response, oh, I'm too hot. Then blood will come, flood the palm of the hands, everything vasodilates to let go of the heat. Or I'm too cold, then you get everything constricting to bring the blood back. When we start having a misstep in our estrogen, or we have a huge estrogen surge, which happens around ovulation, and women start to get period headaches or or migraines around ovulation, it's because there's, again, too much communication between blood vessel responses, uh, vasoconstriction dilation. The one thing that we have done in thermoregulatory research is looking at how do we control that response. So you know that the onset of a migraine or the onset of a headache, we want to get the hands warm, the palm of your hands warm, because what that does is it signals a vasodilation. So you have so much um, blood that goes through the palm, palmar surfaces of your hands and your feet that if you get it warm, you get a complete signaling of vasodilation, which eliminates the headache. If we're looking at constant headaches and constant migraines, it's hard to walk around and go, oh, I need to warm my hands up. So then we look at using um, things like beta alanine or we use beet juice because both of these help with the regulation of vasodilation and vasoconstriction. Um, So usually when we start looking at warming our hands, this really starts to attenuate uh, headaches and it also teaches the body that it's okay, we can vasodilate and it'll stop the severity and the frequency of migraines and headaches. If that doesn't work, then we start looking at at supplementing with beta alanine and beet juice or nitrates. Okay. I have not heard of those two. So I'm excited to try that and share that with uh, some of my lady clients. Cool. And then um, one more. So the thing that really struck me and a lot of the women that are, um, because my partner's a trainer and she's is sharing your book 
with everyone and all of her clients. And we all have the same response. How am I going to eat that much protein? <laughs> I know. People ask because it all saying, the time. Like we Essentially, if I'm 160 pounds, I should be taking in 160 grams of protein. Is, do I have that right? Yep. So that was yep. mind boggling because I'm like, what? I know. Or maybe we're like, but palm size portion of lean meat is about 22 grams. So the thing about protein is we're not talking just meat-based, dairy-based stuff. So if you're looking at everything that has protein in it, if you're having nuts and seeds and sprouted grain bread, there's a good whack of protein in there. If we're looking at green peas added to your salad, we're looking at um, other legumes that you're adding to your salad, all that contributes to protein. So it's just a conscious awareness that we need to reach for some kind of protein-oriented food at every meal. So we know that if we are evenly distributing the protein throughout the day, it does much better for women with regards to body comp, energy levels, and amino acid pool. So you having around 30, 35 grams of protein at each meal, which isn't that hard to do if you're thinking about it as your meal, and then 15-ish grams for every snack. And when you start parsing it throughout the day, you're up to 150 or so grams without even trying. It just seems like when you do the math, you're like 160 grams. That's like 15 cans of beans I have to eat in a day. Right? <laughs> and I don't like but beans we, too much. <laughs> no, we don't want to quantify it that. Or I have to eat um, what someone told me, 20 chicken breasts in a day. I'm like, no, you don't. No. Don't quantify it that way. Think about all the diversity of the food and the fact that as we get into perimenopause, we need to have a wider variety of foods to help support that gut. So we're looking at all the, the veggies that have protein in it and you're adding it into different things. You're looking at if you're more animal oriented then you know, all your lean meats in your eggs and your dairy. If you're vegan, then you're going for pea protein isolate as a supplement, or you're looking for your tempehs that are fermented so there's so many different options to really be able to put that protein in. And again, it comes back down to feed yourself, like really exactly. feed yourself and feed yourself well. And um, in the planning, the planning piece. Which can be hard, uh, but it becomes easier as it becomes rote. After two to three weeks of planning, you're in a habit. And the one thing that I want everyone to remember is it's not calories in, calories out. A lot of people get hung up on the, oh, I need to hit so many macros in a day and I can only have 1,500 calories a day. It's like, no, it's not about that. It's about the timing of your food and feeding your body when you are under stress, which is being awake, doing work, doing exercise, dealing with meetings, all that kind of stuff requires fuel. And then you can think, okay, well, I don't want to eat two hours before bed. And then you don't eat while you're sleeping. So you have this availability of feeding yourself in the wake hours, which is how your body likes it anyway. And all of that feeds forward to better health outcomes, better gut outcomes, better neurotransmitters, attenuating menopausal symptoms. And it just works so much better for women who are peri and postmenopause. So we have a lot of... Um spiritual and yoga practitioners that listen to this show and the tendency for our practices is to wake up um, have some warm a warm beverage for the gut and then to go do our practice and meditate and not eat mm. because we want to do it on an empty stomach so and i read in your book that we should be breaking our fast within 30 minutes of waking up so what is that right what what do we what do we do because we're supposed to be doing this on an empty stomach but 
you know, now you're, we're supposed to be eating, you know, like 25 yeah. grams of protein right away. So what I've been doing is just doing a shake, but still that feels a little heavy for my practice. Yeah. So, um, there are some other things that we can look at doing too. It's just about having 120 to 150 calories before you're doing any kind of exercise, preferably from protein. You can look at protein waters. There are, um, uh, instantized proteins that you can add to hot beverages. So there is, um, uh, gosh, I forgot what brand it was, but it's using cayenne, lemon, and pea protein isolate that's been instantized. And you can have it as a hot tea. And I've had quite a few of my friends who are yogis implement that. And they feel a lot better because they can concentrate and they can get into their practice and stay there without getting the distraction of, you know, that kind of hypoglycemic feeling where you're trying to be like, is that part of what it is or do I need to eat? So it's just a small amount to tell your hypothalamus, yeah, there's food coming in. I can get through this. And then you have breakfast afterwards. So it's not about having a full meal before. It's not about having a whole lot of food before. It's about having just enough to signal, yes, there's stuff coming in. And so that lightheaded wooziness is not you ascending. It's you just not being fed. Exactly. <laughs> it's your body Go going, on. I need some food. <laughs> oh, Tracy. I mean, Stacy, please tell me um, how, well, first of all, I want ever you to tell everyone, you know, how we can uh, get more of you. And I know that you have this amazing course that just launched not too long ago called Menopause 2.0. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, Initially, we had one that was called Women Are Not Small Men, and this is a, a, a large class. And we had a lot of people who were like, well, what about menopause? What about menopause? And I was like, we need a course for menopause. So we did that course, but then the book came out and a lot of science has changed over the past couple of years. So I updated this complete course to the newest science that's out there to really describe the physiological processes of what's happening as we go through peri and postmenopause. It talks about the history of it. It talks about all the different things that are involved in menopause hormone therapy and alternatives, what kind of training we should be doing, what kind of nutrition we should be doing. There's something like 10 different case studies of different athletic abilities being from my state of point, it's point of view. If you move on purpose, you are an athlete. So it's not about thinking, Oh, you know, someone who does 20 hours of training a week, which is ridiculous. Um, so yeah, the whole thing encompasses all of the thought process behind the physiology and science of menopause. That's awesome. So if you're listening, number one, go get her book next level. Thank you. And then also go look up menopause 2.0 and you can find that on your website, drstacysems.com. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yes. And you're also on Instagram and you're always putting out incredible information on uh, Instagram as well as your newsletter is just chock full of incredible information. So I would highly recommend get on her newsletter, follow her on Instagram and it's Dr. Stacy Sims on IG as well. Correct. Yes, it is. Okay, Thank good. You. I got yeah. it right. Woo. You did. Woo. Just never know with the menopausal brain. I'm like, uh. <laughs> and it is menopause awareness month. Evidently. I'm like, why do we need a special month for it? Especially October 18th, I think is the day. Okay. Well your show. Yeah. So your show is on October 20th. So 
There we go. It's perfect. perfect. It's perfect. So we are at the end of our show, unfortunately, but thank you so much, Stacey, for um, being here and sharing all your wisdom and insights. And I so appreciate you doing all this phenomenal research for us women, because it's time for us to really step in and start having these conversations and relanguage um, how we view about our view our bodies and our periods and going through menopause and all of these things. So thank you so, so much. And if you are listening, be sure to come back every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time because we will be coming back each week with another phenomenal guest to help you rise and thrive together. And I am your host, Lindsay McCowan, and I look forward to hearing you and seeing you and perhaps being with you every week. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Women Thriving Unapologetically. We hope we've inspired you to claim your birthright to thrive. Tune in next week where we will continue to give you the tools you need to flourish, prosper, and thrive. Until then, have a beautiful week.